Welcome to Cleveland Clinic Cardiac Consult, brought to you by the Seidel and Arnold Miller Family Heart and Vascular Institute at Cleveland Clinic. In each podcast, we aim to provide relevant and helpful information for healthcare professionals involved in cardiac, vascular, and thoracic specialties. Enjoy. I'm Dr. Steve Nissen, and I'm here with Dr. Jay Cotri. Uh, Dr. Cotri is an interventional cardiologist with a uh, a specialty in treating chronic total occlusions. Uh, um, So Jay, this is sometimes described by people as the last frontier of interventional cardiology. Whether that's true or not, uh, it certainly is an interesting and challenging area. It's definitely on the cusp of what can be done from a technical standpoint and with the equipment that we have available. We're right on the bleeding edge, literally. Yeah, so um, the success rates seem to be getting better. Uh, Maybe you can help us understand, Uh, let's first talk about who are the patients that you really want to see that have 100% occlusion that you can do something for? What are the kind of criteria in the contemporary era for doing this kind of a procedure? Sure. That's still a bit of a moving target, to be perfectly honest with you. There's still a lot of um, different data, divergent data that's uh, been published recently, but what we do feel comfortable with is that patients with symptoms can be helped. Yes. So patients with significant angina, which is refractory to medical therapy, those are folks that we can help. Now, um, you generally will do some kind of an ischemia test here. Yes. And do you have preferences? I mean, what do you like to see here that is an indicator that you may well be able to benefit the angina with these patients? Well, the patient that comes with clear-cut angina, it's, it's easy. If they have a good angiogram and they have symptoms and we know by an echo or an LV-gram that they have good wall motion, then that's somebody that's got viable tissue and they're likely to benefit. How do you know that that 100% lesion is the culprit? Um, well, that's, that's fair. I think that it's not always that straightforward in a patient with single-vessel disease who's got angina and uh, is otherwise doing well, it's, it's easy. You can put it together. In patients with multi-vessel disease, it's not quite so straightforward. Mm-hmm. We oftentimes need to do additional imaging. I favor PET scan because I think that that gives me ischemia as well as viability assessment. Yeah. Others use MRI or stress echo. It just depends on the expertise locally. Are you, are you doing rubidium with uh, F18 deoxyglucose? Is that typically what you're getting or just the rubidium? Um, it depends. So if they have an echo that already shows good wall motion, I'm okay with just demonstrating ischemia if the symptoms are a little equivocal. If, if there's wall motion, then I would want to have some viability as well. Yeah. So you got a patient, they've got, you know, um, severe angina. Uh, it's lifestyle. I presume you're looking for lifestyle limiting angina. Yes. Uh, they have intact wall motion, so you have every reason to believe that there's a viable myocardium in the distribution. Are there technical markers of the likelihood that you're going to be able to help them? Oh, yes, yes. So let's talk about those. Okay. Well, there's, there's clinical as well as angiographic criteria that we use, and the most widely publicized one is the JCTO score, the okay. Japan Multicenter Registry Score. Okay. And that's a combination of various clinical as well as angiographic uh, criteria that we use to score the patient. And what are the, what are the key things that go into that score? What are you looking for? Well, we're looking for the length of the total occlusion. Okay. We're looking for tortuosity in the vessel. Uh, whether it's been attempted previously is also... Now, let me interrupt you and say, so how do you know what the length of the total occlusion is? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question, and that's an area of active debate um, and, and part of my research endeavors uh, at the clinic. Uh, we don't really know. We're basing that off of 
the referring angiogram, and it's a little bit of guesswork to determine. I mean, the cutoff that we use is 20 millimeters, and we think that if it's beyond 20 millimeters, it can be technically much more challenging to fix, but as we're finding out from work that we've done here at the clinic, oftentimes it's not as long as what it looks. And just probing with specialty wires is enough to show that it's not that long, and we can get a lot of difficult lesions done relatively straightforward. So you see an area where, the, where there's no dye, but then the vessel reconstitutes distally, yes. and that's your indicator. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And so if it's shorter, more likely to be successful. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. So you put all that into a score, and you say, okay, we think we can help this patient. Yes. Now, technically, I know that there's been enormous advances. Perhaps you could help us understand what are the things you're now doing. I know there's a variety of techniques that are used. I hear about retrograde approaches versus antegrade. So perhaps you could talk about that a little bit. Sure. So, I mean, that's, you're alluding to the, the point that, that this dramatic improvement in success rates is because of advanced crossing strategies. Yes. So the one that everyone's familiar with now is using retrograde collaterals to uh, advance wires to the distal target. Yeah. And then advancing wires to the retrograde system to meet up with the integrated wires. I see. And you, you come from both sides. Yes. And uh, meet in the middle? Meet in the middle. So you hit the front door and the back door and meet in the middle. And then uh, beyond that, there are advanced integrate techniques where we dissect along the artery and then use specialty balloons to re-enter the artery distally. Yeah. Now, it's interesting because I'm an old-fashioned guy, and I learned, you know, in the early era, and we did everything we could not to go subintimal. Right. And you deliberately go subintimal. I live in the subintimal space. Exactly. So describe how that procedure works. A lot of people who don't do this are probably going to be a little surprised at the, what you guys do. Well, I mean, I guess it's, uh, it, it's, it's a paradigm shift, as you're indicating, in terms of what an interventional cardiologist does. We are purposely advancing guide wires into the subintimal space, both on the integrated side as well as the retrograde side, because we know that if we're in the subintimal space, we're unlikely to perforate, we're unlikely to enter the pericardium, and we can make connections between the anterograde and the retrograde gear. Now, I would think, just intuitively, that getting into the subintimal space would increase the likelihood of rupturing, of perforating the artery. Well, I, I think that if you're using the wrong equipment, you're, you're correct. But yeah. there are specialty techniques and wires that we use to traverse that subintimal space in a safe way and make connections. So you get the wire in the subintimal space, and you then it somehow exits later on into the true lumen? Yes, it either luckily re-enters the true lumen or you make it enter the true lumen. Okay. Yeah. You like to believe that these things are deliberate rather than yeah. accidental. Okay. And then what do you do after that? Well, then it's a matter of connecting the dots. Once we have a connection made between the, ant, the, the proximal and the distal bed, uh, we either can perform the entire procedure through the integrated system or use a wire that's entirely externalized, so goes in one way and out the other way through the heart, and use that to deliver our stents. Yeah. Now, um, another thing that intuitively doesn't make sense to me, and I need to understand this better, is since you're in a space where there's not the endothelium, how does the stent re-endothelialize? Um, that's an area that's been studied 
pretty extensively at this point. It turns out that the uh, at least a 12-month and even longer data shows very good primary patency rates. Yeah. Um, so it does endothelialize. And One way or the other, it gets an endothelial coating over the stent. Well, a lot of it probably gets back to some of the work that you were uh, responsible yeah. for, and that's the IVIS data that shows that the outcomes are better if you can expand the stent and oppose it to the walls yes. appropriately. Yes. So it turns out that if you're in the subintimal space, it's very compliant. Yeah. It's very easy to expand stents. It's very easy to oppose the wall. Whereas in a atherosclerotic segment, it may not be quite as easy to do. Right. So that may, although we don't have the evidence for that, that may be part of why this works so well. So you get a good, nice, big lumen. And then how long do you give dual antiplatelet therapy? Uh, we use the standard recommendations for stable coronary intervention patients. So that seems to be diminishing in duration as we get more comfortable with third generation DES. Yeah. And... Uh, you know, so then these folks you follow. And in the contemporary era with a really good operator, and I, I know you're very successful, you do a lot of these, what should physicians expect the one-year patency rate to be? I think the one-year patency rate should be pretty comparable to what we get out of standard PCI at this point. Really? Yeah. So that's really an enormous advance. Yeah. Does it matter whether you go, get at it at retrograde or anterograde? There isn't a lot of differentiation in terms of how we cross. The, the issue really is with uh, the incidence of complications. Yeah. So that is something that we're still grappling with and starting to understand a little bit better. Is it higher with the retrograde approach? It's higher with retrograde as well as the subintimal dissection reentry techniques. Yeah. What are the complications you worry about? So the biggest thing you worry about is side branch loss and periprocedural MI because of long-term implications to the patient. Yes. Uh, but there are technical things that can happen during the procedure, like rupture of a collateral, uh, pericardial fusions and tamponade, yeah. um, even mechanical complications related to intramural hematomas that are created by these uh, advanced techniques. What kind of a perforation rate are you talking about here? What what should one be? What what's acceptable here? I, I think that that has been relatively underreported. There are some recent registry data that indicate that in busy centers with multi-center registries, it's around 3%. Okay, yeah. But these are people, you select them because they're miserable. They can't... Correct. You know, if you can't walk to the bathroom without chest pain, then, you know, you're probably willing to accept the 3% risk. And, and on top of that, I guess I would say is this is 3% selected from very high volume experienced operators. Right. So it's not an all-comer. Um, data set. What you're telling me, and we hear this a lot when we do these kind of podcasts, is that this is no space for amateurs. It's a very difficult procedure and the stakes are high and you really have to be comfortable with these things and you have to be comfortable with how to manage the complications because they will occur. Yeah, okay. Now, um, where are we going? What's the next frontier? Well, that's a, a, an active area of research for me. We have far more patients that could be benefited from these procedures than we have operators capable of doing them. Right. And so what we need to do is find ways to rely less on these advanced techniques and become more proficient in traditional uh, interventional techniques, yeah. find simpler, safer ways to get these yes. procedures done. And are there ways, is something happening? Are we going to get there? Well, stay tuned. We're yeah, working yeah. on that yeah. right now. Okay. Yeah, but we, we think that there will be ways to uh, apply just traditional interventional techniques to relatively difficult lesions, at least by the JCTO score, that yeah. previously were felt to be only advanced crossing. So everybody likes to talk about their successes. Let's talk about what percent of patients that get referred to a major center like ours with a skilled operator 
you just can't get across it. What's the, what's the, what's the true failure rate like? I think that with, with the kind of patient that we see, because we often see a lot of outside failures already from right. experienced operators. So they've already had an attempt, yeah. couldn't get across it. They say, well, go, let's go see Dr. Kotri and see what he can do for you. Yeah. So right now, our numbers are around 87% success. Okay. You know, again, assuming that you're selecting patients whose quality of life is being very significantly impaired, that's still pretty good. It's good, and and with the right patient who understands the risk of these complications, it's it's a very gratifying thing to do, even when it's not always successful. Okay, now a couple of final questions. Um, is surgery ever an option for these people? I mean, you see a big distal vessel, right? So, assuming that you know they have other lesions, mm -hmm. is cabbage you know a a competing technology here? I think it's a complementary technology, and yeah. we certainly have referred some of our failures onto our surgeons for cabbage, yeah. redo cabbage. Typically, yeah. it's a patient who already has a good lima, so the argument is a little softer because yeah. the mortality benefit's already been achieved. Yeah. But there are patients with a large circumflex or a large right that we yeah. simply can't get, and we have sent them for a redo surgery. Do you ever do CTO procedures on vein grafts? We use vein grafts almost exclusively as a retrograde conduit. So we never fix the vein graft anymore, but we use them a lot to get into the retrograde system. Yeah. Well, really, uh, thank you so much for you know, bringing everybody up to speed on this uh, amazing uh, development. I you know, never would have guessed you know, uh, 10 or 20 years ago that so many of these chronic occlusions could be reopened, but, mm -hmm. you're, but you're getting it done. Yep. And thank you very much for, for watching. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. We welcome your comments and feedback please contact us at heart at ccf.org. Like what you heard? Please subscribe and share the link on iTunes.